Chapter 23, Tertia Morganum by P.D. Espensky, read by Fred Flanagan. This part of the chapter is Espensky's quoting of Dr. R.M. Bach from his book Cosmic Consciousness. I've split this out because it is quite lengthy and after which Espensky comments on this excerpt. And in essence, Espensky, spoiler alert, comments on this excerpt to tear it down. So this is the reason I have separated this particular section as part two. The psychological picture of the awakening of the new consciousness is given by Dr. Bach in his book Cosmic Consciousness. I shall quote in an abridged form a few fragments from this book. What is Cosmic Consciousness? Cosmic Consciousness, then, is the higher form of consciousness than that possessed by the ordinary man. This last is self-consciousness and is that faculty upon which rests all of our life, both subjective and objective, which is not common to us and the higher animals except that small panic which is derived from the few individuals who have had the higher consciousness above named. To make the matter clear, it must be understood that there are three forms or grades of consciousness. One, simple consciousness, which is possessed by, say, the upper half of the animal kingdom. Two, self-consciousness, which man has over and above the simple consciousness, which is possessed by man as by animals. 3. Cosmic Consciousness By means of simple consciousness, a horse or a dog is just as conscious of things about him as man is. He is also consciousness of his own limbs and body and knows they are a pan of these or a pan of himself. By virtue of self-consciousness, man is not only conscious of trees, rocks, water, his own limbs and body, but becomes conscious of himself as a distinct entity apart from all the rest of the universe. It's as good as certain that no animal can realise himself in that way. Further, by means of self-consciousness, man becomes capable of treating his own mental states as objects of consciousness. The animal's, animal is, as it were, immersed in his own consciousness as a fish in the sea. He cannot even in imagination get outside of it for one moment so as to realise it. But man, by virtue of self-consciousness, can step aside, as it were, from himself and think, Yes, that thought that I had about that matter is true. I know that it is true, and I know that I know that it is true. Animals cannot think in the same manner, but if they could, we should soon know it. Between two creatures living together with dogs or horses and men, each self-conscious, it would be the simplest matter in the world to open up communication. Even as it is, we do enter into the dog's mind pretty freely. We see what's going on there, if he were self-conscious, he mu we must have learned it long ago. We have not learned it, and it is as good as certain that no dog, horse, elephant, or ape ever was self-conscious. Another thing, on man's self-consciousness has built everything in and about us distinctly human. Language is the objective of which self-consciousness is the subjective. Self-consciousness and language, two in one, for they are two halves of the same thing, are the sine qua non of human social life, of manners, of institutions, of industries of all kind, of arts, useful and fine. If any animal possessed it, it seems certain that it would, upon that master faculty, build a superstructure of language. But no animal has done this. Therefore we infer that no animal has self-consciousness, 
but the possession of self-consciousness and language by man creates an enormous gap between him and the highest creatures possessing simple consciousness, merely. Cosmic consciousness is a third form which is far above self-consciousness is that above simple consciousness. The prime characteristic of cosmic consciousness is, as the name implies, the consciousness of the cosmos, that is, of the life and order of the universe. Along with the consciousness of the cosmos, there occurs an intellectual enlightenment or illumination, which alone would place the individual on a new plane of existence, would make him almost a member of a new species. To this is added a state of moral exaltation, indescribable feeling of elevation, elation in consciousness and the quickening of the moral sense, which is fully as striking and more important both to the individual and to the race, that is the enhanced intellectual power. With these come what may be called a sense of immortality, a consciousness of eternal life, not a conviction that he shall have this, but the consciousness he has of already. In this division lies Dr. Buck's greatest mistake. Human consciousness, that is, the consciousness of the overwhelming majority of men is simple consciousness. Self-consciousness, like cosmic consciousness, exists only in short glimpses. Only a personal experience of it or a prolonged study of men who have passed into the new life will enable us to realise what this actually is. The present writer expects his work to be useful in two ways. First, in broadening the general view of human life by comprehending in our mental vision this important phase of it which is hidden from us, and by enabling us to realise in some measure the true status of certain men who down to the present are either exalted to the rank of gods or are judged insane. The view the writer takes is that our self-descendants will sooner or later reach as a race the condition of cosmic consciousness just as long ago our ancestors passed from simple to self-consciousness. He believed this step in evolution is even now being made, since it is clear to him both that men with the faculty in question becoming more and more common, and also that as a race we are approaching nearer and nearer to that stage of the self-conscious mind from which the transition to the cosmic consciousness is affected. He knows that intelligent contact with cosmic conscious minds assures self-conscious individuals in the ascent to a higher plane. Dr. Buck here expresses the view that the immediate future of humanity is indescribably hopeful. At the present time there stand before us three inevitable revolutions, the least of which will reduce to nothing all the unknown historical upheavals which were called revolutions in the past. The first is the material political revolution will come to pass as a result of an establishment of aviation. The second is the economic and social revolution which will abolish private property and it will at once free the earth of two great evils, riches and poverty. And the third is the physical revolution which is dealt with here. Either of the first two revolutions will by itself radically change the conditions of human life and will raise it to a great height. But the third will accomplish hundreds of thousands of times more than the first two taken together. And the three operating together will literally create a new heaven and a new earth. The old order of things will be finished and done away with, and a new order will take its place. 
on account of aviation, national boundaries, customs, tariffs, perhaps even the differences in language will fade away like shadows. Large cities will no longer have any reason for existence and will dissolve. People who now live in cities will live in the mountains or by the sea, building their habitations on heights hitherto almost inaccessible, commanding beautiful views. In winter they will probably live in small communities. Both the herding together in big cities and the isolation from all cultured life of the agricultural worker will become things of the past. Distances will be practically abolished and there will be no crowding together in one spot and no enforced solitude. Socialism will abolish grinding labour, cruel hardships, offensive demoralising riches, poverty and all its ensuing ills. All these will become merely subjects for historical novels. In contact with the flux of cosmic consciousness, all religions known and named today will be melted down. The human soul will be revolutionised. Religion will absolutely dominate the race. It will not depend on tradition. It will not be believed and disbelieved. It will not be a part of life belonging to certain hours, times and occasions. It will not be in sacred books nor in the mouths of priests. It will not dwell in churches and meetings and forms and days. Its life will not be in prayers, hymns and discourses. It will not depend on special revelations on the word of God to come down to teach nor any Bible or Bibles. It will have no mission to save men from their sins or secure them entrance to heaven. It will not teach a future immortality nor future glories for immortality and all glory will exist in the here and now. The evidence of immortality will live in every heart as sight and in every eye. That of God and of eternal life will be as impossible as now doubt of existence. The evidence of each will be the same. Religion will govern every minute of every day of all life. Churches, priests, forms, creeds, prayers, all agents, all intermediaries between the individual man and God will be permanently replaced by direct and unmistakable intercourse. Sin will no longer exist, nor will salvation be desired. Men will not worry about death or a future, about the kingdom of heaven, about what may come with and after the cessation of life of the present body. Each soul will feel and know itself to be immortal will feel and know the entire universe with all its good and all its beauty is for it and belongs to it forever. The world people with men possessing cosmic consciousness will be as far removed from the world of today as this is from the world as it was before the advent of self-consciousness. 3. There is a tradition probably very old to the effect that the first man was innocent and happy till he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But having eaten thereof, he became aware he was naked and was ashamed. Further, that there was sin was born into the world. The miserable sense whereof replaced man's former feeling of innocence. That then and not till then, man began to labour and cover his body. Stranger than all being the story runs, that along with his change, or immediately following it, there came into man's mind the remarkable conviction whether since never left it, but which has been kept alive by the teaching of all true seers, prophets and poets, 
that this accursed thing which has bitten man's heel should eventually be crushed and subjugated by man himself by the rising up within him of a saviour, the Christ. Man's progenitor was a creature with simple consciousness merely. He was, as after day, the animals, incapable of sin or the feeling of sin and equally incapable of shame, at least in the human sense. He had no feeling or knowledge of good and evil. He as yet knew nothing of what we call work and had never laboured. From this state he fell or rose into self-consciousness. His eyes were opened. He knew that he was naked. He felt shame, acquired the sense of sin, became in fact what is called a sinner and learned to do certain things in order to accomplish certain ends. That is, he learned to labour. For weary ends, this condition has lasted. The sense of sin still haunts his pathway. By the sweat of his brow he still eats bread, he is still ashamed. Where is the deliverer, the saviour? Who or what? The saviour of man is the cosmic consciousness. In Paul's language, the Christ. The cosmic consciousness, in whatever mind it appears, crushes the serpent's head, destroys sin, shame, the sense of good and evil as contrasted one with the other, and will annihilate labour though not human activity. For a personal exposition of Dr. Buck's own cosmic experience and the feelings which preceded it will perhaps help the reader to understand the essence of the facts expanded below. He was subject at times to a sort of ecstasy of curiosity and hope, as on one special occasion, when about ten years ago he earnestly longed to die, that the secrets of the beyond, if there was any beyond, might be revealed to him. At the age of thirty, he fell in with Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, and at one saw that it contained in greater measure than any book so far found what he had so long been looking for. He read the leaves eagerly, even passionately, but for several years derived little from them. At last light broke, and there was revealed to him, as far perhaps as such things can be revealed, at least some of the meanings. Then occurred to him that to which the foregoing is preface. It was in the early spring, at the beginning of his 36th year, he, had, he and two friends had spent the evening reading Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats, Browning, and especially Whitlam. They parted at midnight, and he had a long drive in a hansom that was an English city, his mind deeply under the influence of ideas, images and emotions called up by the reading and talk of the evening was calm and peaceful. Reader's note, this of course applies to Dr Buck. He was in a state of quiet, almost passive enjoyment. All at once, without warning of any kind, he found himself wrapped around, as it were, by a flame-coloured cloud. For an instant he thought of fire, some sudden conflagration in the great city. The next he knew that the light was within himself. Directly afterwards came upon him a sense of exultation, of immense joyousness, accompanied or immediately followed by an intellectual illumination quite impossible to describe, into his brain streamed one momentary lightning flash of the Brahmic splendour which has ever since lightened his life. Upon his heart fell one drop of Brahmic bliss, leaving thenceforth for always an aftertaste of heaven. Among other things he did not come to believe, he saw and knew that the cosmos is not dead matter but a living presence, 
that the soul of man is immortal, that the universe is so built and ordered that without any peradventure all things work together for the good of each and all, that the foundation principle of the world is what we call love, that the happiness of everyone is in the long run absolutely certain. He claims that he learned more within the few seconds during which illumination lasted than in previous months or even years of study. And he learned much that no study could ever have taught. The illumination itself continued not more than a few moments, but its effect proved ineffaceable. It was impossible for him ever to forget what he at that time saw and knew. Neither did he, nor could he ever doubt the truth of what was then presented to his mind. There was no return that night or any other time of the experience. The supreme occurrence of that night was his real and sole initiation to the new and higher order of things, but it was only an initiation. He saw the light, but had no more idea whence it came and what it meant than had the first creature that saw the light of the sun. Years afterwards he met a man who had entered the higher life of which he had a glimpse and had a large experience of its phenomena. His conversation with this man threw a flood of light upon the true meaning of what he himself had experienced. He saw the significance of the subjective light in the case of Paul and that of Muhammad. The secret of Whitman's transcendent greatness was revealed to him. Certain conversations and personal intercourse with men who had similar experiences, among whom was Edward Carpenter, assisted greatly in the broadening and clearing up of his speculations. But much time and labour were still required before the germinal concept could be satisfactorily elaborated and matured. The idea, namely, that there exists a family sprung from living among but scarcely forming a plan of a band of ordinary humanity whose members are spread about throughout the advanced races of mankind and throughout the last 40 centuries of the world's history. The trait that distinguishes these people from other men is their spiritual eyes have been opened and they have seen. The better known members of this group who, whether collected together, could be accommodated all at one time in a modern drawing room, have created all the great modern religions and, generally speaking, have created through religion and literature and modern civilization. Not that they have contributed any large numerical portion proportion of the books which have been written, but that they had produced a few books which have inspired the larger number of all that have been written in modern times. These men dominate the last 25 centuries as stars of the first magnitude dominate the midnight sky. 5. It remains to say a few words about the psychological origin of cosmic consciousness. Although in the birth of cosmic consciousness, the moral nature plays an important part, it would be better for many reasons to confine our attention at present to the evolution of the intellect. In this evolution there are four distinct steps. The first of them was taken when upon the primary quality of excitability sensation was established. At this point began the acquisition of more or less perfect registration of sense impressions, that is, of percepts. A percept is, of course, a sense impression. If we could go back car enough, we should find among our ancestors a creature whose whole intellect was made up simply of these percepts. But this creature had in it what may be called an eligibility of growth. 
What happened with it was it was something like this. Individually and from generation to generation, it accumulated these percepts, the constant repetition of which, calling for further and further registration, led to an accumulation of cells in the centre sense ganglia. At last a condition was reached in which it became possible for our ancestor to combine groups of these percepts into what we today call a reset. This process is very similar to that of a composite photography when a series of repeated photographs is taken on one negative, for example snapshots of members of the same family. Similar percepts as of a tree are registered one over another till they are generalised into a reset of a tree. Now the work of accumulation begins again on a higher plane. The sensory organs catch steadily at word manufacturing percepts. The receptual centres catch steadily at work manufacturing more and yet more recepts. The capacity of the central ganglia are constantly taxed to do the necessary registration of percepts. The necessary elaboration of these into recepts and the necessary registration of recepts. Now as the ganglia by use and selection are improved, they constantly manufacture from percepts and from initial simple recepts more and more complex, that is, higher and higher recepts. At last, after many thousands of generations of lived and died, comes a time when the mind has reached the highest possible point of purely receptual intelligence. The accumulation of percepts and recepts has gone on until no greater stores or impressions can be laid up. Then another break is made and higher recepts are replaced by concepts. The relation of a concept to a recept is somewhat similar to the relation of algebra to arithmetic. A recept is, as I've said, a composite image of hundreds, perhaps thousands of percepts. But a concept is that com composite image the same re recept name, ticket, and as it were, dismissed. A concept is in fact neither more nor less than a name recept. The name, that is, the sign, as in algebra, standing henceforth for the thing itself, that is, for the recept. Now it is as clear as day to anyone who will give the least thought to the subject that the evolution by which the concepts are submitted for recepts increases the efficiency of the brain for thought as much as the introduction of machinery increased the capacity of the race for work, or as much as the use of algebra increases the power of the mind in mathematical calculations. To replace a great cumbersome reset by a simple sign was almost like replacing actual goods as wheat, fabrics and hardware by entries in a ledger. But as hinted above, in order that a reset may be replaced by a concept, it must be named, or in other words, marked with a sign which stands for it, just as a check stands for a piece of goods, in other words, the race that is in possession of concept is also unnecessarily in possession of language. Further, it should be noted, as the possession of concepts implies the possession of language, so the possession of concepts and language, which in, are in reality two aspects of the same thing, implies the possession of self-consciousness. All this means there is a moment in the evolution of the mind when the resexual intellect, capable of simple consciousness only, becomes almost or quite instantaneously a conceptual intellect in possession of language and self-consciousness. Our intellect then today is made up of a very complex mixture of percepts, recepts and concepts. 
The next chapter in the story is the accumulation of concepts. This is a double process. Each one accumulates year by year a larger and a larger number, while at the same time, the individual concepts are becoming constantly more and more complex. Is there to be any limit to this growth of concepts in number and complexity? Whoever will seriously consider that question will see that there must be such a limit. No such process can go on to infinity. We have seen that the expansion of the perceptual mind had a necessary limit, that its own continued life led it inevitably up to and into the receptual mind. But the receptual mind, by its own growth, was inevitably led up to and into the conceptual mind. A priori considerations make it certain that a corresponding outlet will be found for the conceptual mind. But we do not need to depend on abstract reasoning to demonstrate the necessary existence of the supraconceptual mind, since it exists and can be studied with no more difficulty than other natural phenomena. The supraconceptual intellect, the elements of which, instead of being concepts or intuitions, is already, in small numbers it is true, an accomplished fact, and the form of consciousness that belongs to that intellect may be called and has been called cosmic consciousness. The basic fact in cosmic consciousness is implied in his name. The fact is consciousness of the cosmos. This is what is called in the East the Brahmic Splendor, which is Nato's phrase capable of transhumanizing a man into a god. Whitman, who has an immense deal to say about it, speaks of it in one place as an ineffable light, rare, untellable, lighting the very light beyond all signs, descriptions, languages. This consciousness shows the cosmos to consist not of dead matter governed by unconscious, rigid and unintending law. It shows it on the contrary as entirely immaterial, entirely spiritual and entirely alive. It shows that death is an absurdity, that everyone and everything has eternal life. It shows that the universe is God and that God is the universe. A great deal of this is, of course, from the point of view of self-consciousness, absurd. It is nevertheless undoubtedly true. Now all this does not mean that when a man has cosmic consciousness he knows everything about the universe. We all know that when at three years of age we acquired self-consciousness, we did not at once know all about ourselves. So neither does a man know all about the cosmos merely because he becomes conscious of it. If it has taken the race several hundred thousands of years to learn a smattering of the science of humanity since his acquisition of self-consciousness, so it may take millions of years to acquire cosmic consciousness. As on self-consciousness, is based the human world as we see it. So on cosmic consciousness is based the higher religions and the higher philosophies and what comes from them. And on it will be based when it becomes more general, a new world of which it will be idle to try to speak today. The philosophy of the birth of cosmic consciousness in the individual is very similar to that of birth of self-consciousness. The mind becomes overcrowded, as it were, with concepts, and these are constantly becoming larger and more numerous and more and more complex. Some day, the conditions being all favourable, the fusion, or what we might call the chemical union of several of them of certain moral elements, takes place. 
The result is an intuition in the establishment of the intuitional mind, or in other words, cosmic consciousness. The scheme by which the mind is built up is uniform from beginning to end. A recept is made of many percepts, a concept is made of many or several recepts and percepts, and an intuition is made of many concepts, recepts and percepts, together with other elements belonging to and drawn from the moral nature. The cosmic vision or intuition, from which may be seen called the new mind takes its name, is thus seen to be simply the complex and union of all prior thoughts and experience, just as self-consciousness is the complex and union of all thought and experience prior to it. Cosmic consciousness, like other forms of consciousness, is capable of growth. It may have different forms, different degrees. It must not be supposed that because a man has cosmic consciousness, he is therefore omniscient and infallible. Men of cosmic consciousness have reached a high level, but on that level there can be different degrees of consciousness. And it must be still more evident that however godlike the faculty may be, those who have first acquired living in diverse ages and countries, passing years of their life in different surroundings, brought up the view of life and interests of life from totally different points of view, must necessarily interpret somewhat differently those things that they see in the new world which they enter. Language corresponds to the intellect and is therefore capable of expressing it perfectly and directly. On the other hand, the functions of the moral nature are not connected with language and only capable of indirect expression by its agency. Perhaps music, which certainly has its roots in the moral nature, is at present existing the beginning of a language which will tally and express emotion as words tally and express ideas. Language is the exact tally of the intellect. For every concept there is a word or words, and for every word there is a concept. No word can come into being except as the expression of a concept, and neither can a new concept be formed without the formation at the same time of a new word which is its expression. But as a matter of fact, 99 out of every 100 of our sense impressions and emotions have never been represented in the intellect by concepts and therefore remain unexpressed and inexpressible except imperfectly by roundabout description and suggestion. As the correspondence of words and concepts is not casual or temporary but resides in the nature of these and continues during all the time and under all circumstances, absolutely constant, so changes in one of the factors must correspond with changes in the other. So evolution of intellect must be accompanied by evolution of language. An evolution of language will be evidence of intellect. It seems that in every or nearly every man who enters into cosmic consciousness, apprehension is at first more or less excited. The person doubting as whether the new sense may not be a symptom or form of insanity. Mohammed was greatly alarmed. I think it's clear that Paul was similarly affected. The first thing each person asks himself upon experiencing new sense is, does what I see and feel represent reality or am I suffering from a delusion? The fact that new experience seems even more real than the old teachings of simple self-consciousness does not at first fully reassure him because he knows the power of delusions. 
simultaneously or instantly following the above sense an emotion experience that comes to the person an intellectual illumination quite impossible to describe. Like a flash there is presented to his consciousness a clear conception, a vision in outline, of the meaning and drift of the universe. He does not come to believe merely, but he sees and knows that the cosmos, which to the self-conscious mind seems made up of dead matter, is in fact far otherwise, is in very truth a living presence. He sees instead of man being as it were patches of life scattered through an infinite sea of non-living substance, they are in reality specks of relative death and an infinite ocean of life. He sees that the life which in man is eternal as all life is eternal, that the soul of man is as immortal as God is. The person who passes through this experience will learn much that no study ever taught or can teach. Especially does he obtain such a conception of the whole, or at least of an immense whole, as dwarfs all conception, imagination, or speculation. Such a conception makes the old attempts to mentally dress the universe in its meaning petty and ridiculous. The expansion of the intellect enormously increases the capacity of acquiring and accumulating knowledge, as well as the capacity of initiative. The history of the development and appearance of cosmic consciousness in humanity is exactly similar to the appearance of all individual mental faculties. When a new faculty appears, it will be found in the beginning in a few exceptional individuals. After a time, it becomes more frequent. Still later, it becomes capable of being developed and acquired by all and finally becomes an attribute of all men from birth. Moreover, rare exceptional faculties, faculties of a genius, appear in man in his maturity, and at times even in old age, becoming more common, more in the nature of talents, they begin to appear in younger men. Later becoming abilities, they begin to appear even in children, and finally become the prop common property of all from birth, their absence is regarded as a defect, such as the faculty of speech that is, the faculty of forming concepts. Probably in the remote past, on the borderline of the appearance of human consciousness, this faculty belonged to only a few exceptional individuals and very likely began to manifest itself only in old age. Later it became more frequent and began to appear earlier. The probably was a period when speech was not an attribute of all men, just as artistic talents, the musical sense, the sense of colour and lines do not now belong to all men. Gradually it became possible for all. Later inevitable and indispensable barring from some physical defect. End of part two.